is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Michael McElroy, and we talk about so much in such a quick amount of time. We talk about Broadway Inspirational Voices, Black Theater United, Umish, and so much more. So I hope you enjoy part one with Michael McElroy. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Michael McElroy. Michael, thank you for taking this time today. Oh, thank you, Clayton. I'm glad to be here. I am so incredibly excited to jump in. I have so many questions. I, in the research and my understanding and following your career and, and life's work, you truly are an educator. And I hope mm -hmm. we can get some fantastic takeaways from this conversation today that can inspire, motivate, and help continue to move the needle in the right direction with life and art. So I want to take it back to the beginning of time. What, what was, what was the initial inspiration for you? What, what were your entertainment dreams growing up? Well, I grew up in, uh, in a very creative family. Uh, my grandmother, my grandfather started the church that I grew up in. So my grandmother played the piano when my mom was born, she played the piano. And then my brother and my sister and I became the musicians and singers of the church, as well as my uncle. So I grew up surrounded by all kinds of music. Uh, my uncle was a musical director, so he would come and stay with us every summer and musical direct a show uh, in, in the local theater scene. And so he would take me to rehearsals. And so I would watch the process and then I'd go back and see the shows. Sure. And um, I was very, uh, had a lot of energy as a child. Uh, and I, um, but when I went to see a show, I was mesmerized. I didn't move. I was totally immersed in the story. And so the thing that really shifted it for me was in fourth grade, we went to see the national tour of Porgy and Best yeah. from school. It was the first time I saw people on stage who looked like me uh, doing something that had already kind of been sparked in my spirit uh, and seeing them doing what they were doing at such a high level of excellence yeah. really lit the flame and went, okay, that's something that I could do. Uh, and from that point on, I knew it was possible. Yeah. What was the deciding moment on where to study? I mean, Carnegie Mellon, huh. how did that come about for you? Well, it came about because back in high school, we used to have these days where representatives would come from different universities um, and they would uh, have like pamphlets and things that they would hand out. And if you were a senior, you could get out of a class by going to one of the fairs, the college fairs. And it just so happens on this particular day, I had not studied as much as I should have for my trigonom trigonometry test. And uh, so I went to this fair. I didn't even know which one I was going to. And it ended up being Carnegie Mellon. And as I sat there listening and they started talking about the drama department and the musical theater program, I was like, this is something that I, this is what I want to do. Uh, and so I took the pamphlet home. I showed it to my mom and we actually signed up to go visit the campus. And when I went to visit the campus, the minute I walked across the cut, I was like, this is where I belong. I just knew it from the time that I walked across campus and seeing the classes that this was where I wanted to go. Um, and then I had to audition. <laughs> <laughs> and that process is uh, similar to the way it is now, minus the pre-screening. Yes. <laughs> CDs or yes. DVDs that yeah. they did. Okay. Mm -hmm. The um, mentors gr growing mm -hmm. up or even at Carnegie Mellon, um, did mm -hmm. you or do you have any and are there any standout lessons? I always had uh, mentors. If it wasn't people in my family, because all, like I said, all of my family members are musicians, 
uh, and that standard of excellence. And also being raised in a church where a big part of being the first family of the church was service. So all the time service, giving back, giving to the community, helping people. Um, so I grew up with that as being one of the major uh, foundations of my training as a young child. And still I, it, I hold that with me today. Um, but I had a uh, music teachers, my elementary school music teacher, she saw my talent and she challenged me and she took an interest in my work. Same thing with my junior high school choral teacher. And then my, in high school, my high school choral teacher and my high school theater teacher, they all saw something in me and encouraged me. And they were the first people outside of my family to say that you have a talent mm. now, how do you want to use it? So I was doing stuff like writing musicals in high school and, and arranging music because I was told that if I could do it, I should do it. Uh, and so those mentors really inspired me to uh, explore the full scope of what it is that I could do. Did you question it ever? Were you like, no, 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 I can't do this. It's not. Or has it always been a knowing within you that, you know, of this uh, vocal arranging music direction, singing, you know, all of it, was it an obvious step for you personally? Well, uh, as I said there, the mentors, I would come to them and I'd say, you know, I've been thinking about, and they go, we'll do it. <laughs> or they wouldn't even, I wouldn't even talk about it. They go, we need to have something, something for this program. Michael, go do it. And I was just raised, once again, in a church environment where you don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I went and figured it out, but I was always inspired by the challenge of figuring it out. Mm. Right? Well, yeah, exactly. What did, what did your parents teach you about work ethic? Oof. Well, um, my father uh, passed away when I was young, when I was four. My mom uh, remarried when I was in high school, uh, the person who eventually took over the church that I grew up in. But my mom uh, and my grandmother um, and my aunt were the three like major forces in my life and my brother and my sister's lives. And hard work, um, always working hard, always giving back, um, service to your community, service to those who are less fortunate than you are um, and that your talent was given by something greater than yourself and you have a responsibility to use it um, but my mom she was a school teacher at the same school for over 35 years um, i never thought i'd be an educator but go figure here we are <laughs> you know and my mom my grandmother was very much involved in politics uh, she ran the 21st Congressional District Caucus for Congressman Louis Stokes in Cleveland. And she was like the head of that. She was on the zoning board for the mayor. She ran our church daycare. So I just grew up around people who really invested in the community, um, put the community sometimes first, you know, when you should put yourself first sometimes. But I do value the hard work. I do value the service and giving back. I do value um, being kind always been kind to people yeah. um, and also holding yourself to a high standard. Yeah. The kindness is key. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, what mm -hmm. did they teach you about kindness? You always have to be nice. It's interesting when you grew up as a first family, meaning the first family, you're one a part of like your father is the minister, you know, yeah. the mother's the first lady of the church. It's a you know Baptist church, but sure your life really isn't your own, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's people 
need you, people request things of you, people ask you to do things all the time, people sometimes don't ask, just assume, and you always have to be graceful, and you always have to be kind. Um, and that is something that has stayed with me. Um, what I had to learn to balance that was self-care, yeah. and that it's okay sometimes to say no, right? Yeah. Because I'm raised as a, in, in the church as being everything that's asked of you, you say yes. I sang at more picnics and <laughs> luncheons and banquets and, you know, all the time, and I hated it at the time. Um, but now I realize that getting up and doing with something when it's asked of you um, and being kind to people, it always comes around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how have you gotten better at saying no? <laughs> no, no, um, I have uh, <laughs> next question. No. Um, it really has been challenging. It has been only in these past couple of years, really through COVID, I think, mm. that I'm starting to figure out what I want to do and separate that from the things that I think I have to do. And how much of the things that I, I'm, that I think I have to do are wrapped up in the way I was trained as a child. And so saying no for me is the ultimate act of self-love. And um, that took me a long time to break the, the, the cycle of, you know, humility and, you know, your life is not your own and you are never allowed to say no. All of those things for me to say, no, that's not going to work for me. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a challenge, but the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with saying it. It's like a muscle. Uh, Is there, is there a text you refer to daily or words? Hmm. It's funny. My, one of my closest friends has an aunt who sends me and my friend a prayer every morning. Just about it, she just, but I, almost all the time, it always hits on something that I'm kind of grappling with. The one thing that I, that I do read every day uh, is a quote by Toni Morrison from an article that she wrote about the artist's role during, t- during times of conflict. Um, and that has been kind of my mantra over, specific, specifically over COVID and everything that we saw happening in our country and on our streets that really put me and my practice and my art into kind of this weird space of no matter how much you do, no matter how much I do, I'm still going to be viewed a certain way when I walk down the street. And I really grappled with that. And like, how do I keep doing this when I know that to some people it doesn't matter, that my life still has no value. And so I really grappled with that. And this quote uh, her, her quote really helped me to understand yeah. that it is in times of conflict is when the artist goes to work. That's when you have to really fight for that art, fight for that it means something, right. um, that you're grappling with things that are that need to be talked about or need to challenge you or the people that hear it. Um, and that kind of helped me find my footing again. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you for doing this because we're going to hop around here. Uh, sure. After Carnegie Mellon, uh, moving to the mm-hmm. city, uh, the, the Broadway mm-hmm. debut, the High Rollers mm-hmm. Social and Pleasure Club. And it ah. was like 13 days that it was open yeah. or something. 12 is rather short. What was that journey yeah. for you mentally and emotionally? Well, it's interesting because it wasn't my first show. My first Broadway show, my first Broadway show was Miss Saigon. So the internet. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, The um, 
So when I auditioned, when I got here, yeah. I graduated from Carnegie and I immediately went into Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. I was cast in Richard III with Denzel Washington. And so I literally graduated, moved to New York and I started rehearsals. Yeah. And I did that and at the tail end of that, I was literally up for four shows. I'm trying to remember what they were. It was Saigon, uh, Serafina, uh, Grand Hotel. And I wanna say The Life. This is way back before it ever came to Broadway. Yeah. And I made it all the way down to the end on everything, but I got uh, Sarafina. And so I went on the road with Sarafina as one of two Americans for six months. Yeah. Uh, then I left to do a play, a regional play, a production of Fences. Then I went back to Sarafina and closed the tour, then moved to New York. Um, and I got a show off Broadway uh, called Prom Queens Unchained by the team that did Romance Romance, Keith Herman. Yeah. And I was cast as a swing and uh, went on every so often. And the show didn't run. It was only a short run. It wasn't selling. And so the day it, it closed on a Sunday, I got a call on that Friday before that they wanted me to come in from a Saigon for a replacement on that Monday. So Sunday it closed. Monday, I went into uh, the Broadway theater on the stage, auditioned for Miss Saigon. And Monday afternoon, they called and said that I had gotten the part and I would start rehearsals on Tuesday. So I replaced a guy in this ensemble who had left to do Nick and Nora. And uh, so that was my first show. My Broadway debut was um, Miss Saigon. Quite an awesome show in size, yeah. message, scope, mm -hmm. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Do Some early memories or standout memories from that debut in your mind that stick? Yes. The rake of the stage. <laughs> that was a big one, you know, because it literally from downstage to upstage was a gradual six feet. Mm. Right. So it was really all of us at the chiropractor every day. Um, I remember the first curtain call when I went into the show and the curtain went up. And I remember being so conscious of Michael, this is you only get one first time, mm. one first time on Broadway that you have your very first curtain call on Broadway, and this is it. So be present, take it all in. Um, everything that happened before and after, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. But that moment when that red curtain went up, it was like, this is the first time, and it's the only time you'll have that first. It doesn't mean you'll not have more, right. but this is the first one. This is what the dream has been. This is the thing that you've always fantasized about. Make sure you're present and fully take it in. And I did, so that's another really clear memory for me. Um, it was a huge cast. I think it was like 42 people. Yeah, it's um, gigantic. And, and just being in a, an ensemble that was a family um, was another part of it that I really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, and we're going to keep talking about this community and the future mm -hmm. of Broadway. And I, I'm so excited to dive into that. I want to talk mm -hmm. about your relationship with doubt. What is it? <laughs> and how do you, how do you, you know, work through that? Doubt is um, a distant cousin <laughs> <laughs> who tends to show up uninvited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think the doubt is necessarily a bad thing. When you have questions, it's all the way you frame it. Mm -hmm. If I'm fearful about something or have doubt whether I can do something or not, something or not, then I usually do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, 
the only way to deal with this fear is to face it head on. And then I learned that through the process of doing that, when fear comes up mm. or doubt comes up, mm. I, I just engage it. And I look at doubt as, you know, I hear it and I, my response is always, okay, well, that may be true, mm. but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. Right. And that way, um, Two, the two things can coexist at the same time and you're not paralyzed by it, yeah. right? Those yeah. are just questions. Yeah. How have you gotten at, better at asking questions surrounding that? Well, it, you know, I, I did not want to be held prisoner by my fear or my doubt. And so when doubts come up, I look at it and I also have to take apart, dismantle, what is the real issue here? Right, right. Because most times it has nothing to do with the thing that's causing it. It's like, is it your fear of inadequacy? Is it your fear that you won't be able to do it? Is it your fear of what people expect of you? What is it? Yeah. And I find in the dismantling of it and just breathing, because most of these fears and doubts have to do with past and future. It has nothing to do with the present. Yeah. So just, okay. And the other thing that I used to do is I'd go, what's the worst thing that can happen? And if it's not death, <laughs> then I think I'll be okay, mm. right? You know, and so figuring out what is the thing that I'm afraid of? And if that happened, would I be okay? Yeah. Okay, and then let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. What is this? What is this thought for you with deciding when to push a point forward or to let it go? And I, this conversation, this question can come up in terms of like negotiating or just mm -hmm. moving, you know, in a production meeting, so to speak. When do you mm -hmm. decide, ah, I'm going to let this point go or no, I really need to, you know, I really need to push this through. Well, in a production meeting, there's a balance there. It's a collaborative process. So for example, you learn to read the room and learn to read the energies of the people that you're in the room with. Sure. And let's say, for example, I want something as a director. Sure. Um, and I know that there's a specific, I have to figure out what the resistance is about. If someone's not wanting to give me that, is it about them not being able to, or is it that they have their opinion and they just don't want to meet me in the middle. So that's one, one thing, right? Sure. Another is when you're looking at it and someone's saying, we can't get this, we can't get that, we can't get this, we tried, da, 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 da. and then you go, okay, now I can, I'm willing to shift and compromise, right? Yeah. But it's, you have to really get to know the people that you're in the room with, mm -hmm. to know when to say, this is what I want, make it happen, yeah. or, okay, I see that's not going to work, so what are our other options? Mm. Uh, Broadway inspirational voices yes founding creating yes yes why and how long have mm. you had that thought before you you know did it mm. i moved here in 1990 uh during the height of the aids epidemic and our theater community is such an in incredible community in many ways and what we were doing at that time was doing a lot of fundraising, a lot of cabarets, a lot of concerts, so that the, our fellow you know, actors and stage managers, choreographers, directors, musicians, had the support that they needed as they were living and dying from this disease. Mm -hmm. um, but I quickly recognized that there was nothing that was done for the spirit, for the human spirit, mm -hmm. you know, because there was no logic, no way to wrap our minds around what was happening. And so I had done a cabaret 
one year, I think it was 92, uh, as a fundraiser for Broadway Cares, and then I did one in 93. And I always ended the cabaret with some kind of gospel medley because gospel music is a huge part of my life. It's, you know, I grew up playing, singing, surrounded by musicians. Mm. And so I decided uh, in 94 to just get like 11 friends together and do an evening of gospel music. Mm. And one of the things that was important was that it'd be a diverse group of people. And we create a space where everybody felt welcome because it was really about the music on a greater level being something that has the ability to heal, that has the ability to let you release, but in an environment that was inviting so many of us in the theater world, carry, along, carry around a lot of hurt uh, from being told that because of who we are um, or how we identify that there's no space within a spiritual uh, realm for us, mm -hmm. you know, and so, to have that space say, you know, we were all different races, backgrounds, identities, all of that, and have that reflected back in the people who come, it's a healing space. And the music is just the conduit for that to happen. Yeah. You know, we're not trying to convert anybody. We're not, I'm just like, here's the music, let it, it, let it wash over you, let it fill you up in whatever way you want, yeah. but whatever it is, you're welcome here. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.